Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, the first of two, we will be looking at the changing face of war. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, the images of tanks and troops amassing and then crossing the border could make it seem like little has changed in the world of warfare. However, as the fighting in Ukraine progressed, it also became clear how conflicts today are developing in new and very different ways. Think about how those images were taken, captured by satellites in space or on mobile phones, and how sharing them on social media can shape public attitudes and be used to circumvent or undermine state-sponsored messaging. We have also seen hackers declare cyber war on Russia. In this podcast, we will hear from Dr. Tim Stevens and Dr. Kenneth Payne, both based in the School of Security Studies in our Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's. They will explain how our reliance on digital systems is creating new vulnerabilities, look at the ways that social media is broadening out conflicts today, and explore whether cyber operations could ever be an alternative to sending in troops on the ground. And what about artificial intelligence or AI? What role is that already playing in modern day warfare? Could it replace humans on the battlefield? And will we have AI swarms or shoals roaming the skies or swimming through the oceans, hunting down our enemies? I spoke to both of them just before the invasion of Ukraine, so they are not commenting on that specific war. However, their insights do resonate with the conflict there, plus shed light more generally on some of the new ways we now have of waging war. So let's start with cybersecurity, an area where we now face new risks thanks to our increasingly digital world. Here is Dr. Tim Stevens, head of King's Cybersecurity Research Group, to explain more. Whilst there are social, economic, and perhaps political benefits in wiring everything up, they also create vulnerabilities. And the reason they create vulnerabilities is because it's so difficult to build information systems with perfect security. So there are always vulnerabilities that can be exploited in the sorts of digital infrastructures that, that we've created and on, on, on which we rely for pretty much everything. So when we think about multiple economic sectors, you know, when the critical infrastructure sectors of, of transport, energy, water, food, other forms of logistics, government, civil nuclear, communications, and so on. Cutting across all of those is this digital infrastructure that without which it'd be very, very difficult to supply the basic needs of a population. This has opened up new opportunities too for those waging war. And what that means when we're thinking about conflict is that conflict can reach very, very easily into the interior of a country, for example, say to the capital city or to other major population centers without the need to infiltrate special forces, for example, or without the need to send in the the strategic bombers. And this makes it perfect for an age in which for many countries, conventional war has become all but impossible for achieving one's national strategic objectives. Cyber is certainly something that states see a great deal of value in pursuing because it doesn't put their troops in harm's way. It's readily deniable in the sense that you just say it wasn't us because the forensic analysis is so difficult. 
The idea that technology could be a way of avoiding physical harm to humans during warfare is something that's also fueled those developing artificial intelligence or AI, as Dr. Kenneth Payne of King's Defence Studies Department explains. One thing that people implicitly hope AI will do will be to spare our own people from risk uh, if it comes to war. There are relatively few people in uniform in the UK today, and of those, relatively few are actually the combat teeth of armed forces. And that means we've got very small, highly professional forces that are scarce, representing, a, a broadly speaking, a risk-averse society that's, that's reluctant to use them. AI provides one way of overcoming those challenges, I guess. You can generate mass and you might be more willing to use it uh, if, you, if you put fewer people's lives at risk, fewer of your own people's lives at risk. That's one compelling reason for developing AI. There are also practical considerations where it could offer an advantage. If it's a nuclear-powered submarine, in theory, it could stay at sea for quite a long time until you know the, the sea is a hostile environment, until it starts to physically degrade the platform itself. But in practice, the limiting factor is how much food can you get on board for the human crew, which broadly speaking, is three months or so. So if you don't have the crew on board, you can stay at sea for much longer. And then also there's a scarcity of humans who are willing to go to sea for three months at a time and sit under the ice cap. So if you don't have them in the equation, or at least in the same numbers, well, perhaps you could generate greater volume of submarines to go to sea. A lot of tactical problems, at least, AI has some advantages at. There are things that AI is good at compared to humans and plenty that it's bad at compared to humans as well. But in, in the tactical world, things often devolve to, can you manoeuvre physically to your own advantage? Can you get in a position that's advantageous? Can you shoot accurately when you're in that position? And can you make the decisions allowing you to do so faster than the enemy can? And those, I think, are increasingly problems that play to AI's strengths. It makes decisions fast. It's accurate or can be accurate. It doesn't suffer fatigue, fear, rage to the same extent that humans do. And so for an array of tactical problems, most obviously, for example, flying fighter aircraft, AI seems to offer some advantages over crewed aircraft. However, he warns against countering images of Terminator-type machines, which don't reflect reality of AI now or in the near future. And if we take AI as being an artificial system that can respond usefully to what's going on around it, then it's actually been around a lot longer than most people think. There's a long and intimate connection between AI research and national security, right the way back to the Second World War and uh, the days at Bletchley of code breaking to try and crack German codes. If you think about my definition of intelligence as adapting to its environment in a useful way, well, that's something an acoustic torpedo does, for example. It can detect noise and navigate the torpedo towards where the noise is coming from. So that would constitute an intelligent autonomous weapon system to me. And or if you think about anti-aircraft artillery that can track fast moving planes at great distance and shoot them down, well, that was also being developed, again, in the context of the Second World War in the days before electronic computers. He says in the 1960s, the US Pentagon was one of the largest funders of research in a bid to find systems that could be used in the field, particularly in the Vietnam War. 
And although progress often hasn't lived up to the hype, developments in AI have continued, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. The last decade and a half really has seen um, rapid developments in AI, and that's partly to do with the discovery or rediscovery of uh, a technique called connectionism, deep learning, reinforcement learning. This is AI systems that are modeled very loosely on the processes of the human brain, the cellular processes of the human brain. And it's that technology that's caused a lot of excitement. He highlights how it is not just in the battlefield that AI is already playing a role in security and military activities. If you've got an AI system that plays a part in organising recruitment, well, there's no reason the military can't use that just as well as a civilian company, or one that plays a part in analysing medical records, well, militaries need to do that as well. Sorting the mail, sorting people's pensions, these sorts of back office functions AI can play a part. The other area where AI is playing an increasing role and has been for a little while is in intelligence type activities. And that's in part because of the shift online over the last 20 or 30 years. There's so much more useful information that happens on computer systems that militaries are interested in, a huge volume of information online. And machine learning AI systems are very useful in analyzing that mountain of data, looking for needles in haystacks. So intelligence analysis is something that AI is being used for. Intelligence gathering as well, actually going out and putting sensors in the field, on the battlefield, gathering video information, gathering electronic intelligence information. AI plays a part in that too. So that's a second area, intelligence. And then finally, there's, of course, that dramatic area uh, of um, tactical activity of combat and so on, where we're still slightly in the early days of AI playing a part. Of course, we have uninhabited aerial vehicles, Predator and Reaper drone, very famously from the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, are good examples of that. We're starting to see uninhabited ships and submarines, and we're in the early stages of developing uninhabited combat aircraft. That's quite a complex task. As recently as last year, for example, an American algorithm outperformed human fighter pilots in simulated aerial combat. So we're seeing AI start to move into the combat activities that militaries have traditionally done as well. And then I think the last thing to say is that AI will play, may play, an increasing part in what we call strategy. So that's not the tactical activity of combat, but it's the business of thinking about war on a larger canvas. What do you want to achieve? What's the enemy after? How hard will they fight? What options can we explore? And AI is likely to play a part there, not on its own, because it doesn't think like a human. There's an awful lot of complexity and subtlety that AI isn't necessarily best equipped for but I think more likely as part of a human machine team working through options, simulating possible future developments. I think one of the biggest developments in the near future is going to be swarming, which is the use of large numbers, possibly vast numbers of AI-powered platforms operating autonomously as part of a huge collective swarm, or if they're at sea, a shoal, you think of a shoal of, of fish or flock of birds, and that changes the possibilities for combat in a fairly dramatic way, and the implications of that are still being worked through. 
So again, we're in the early stages of that. In the UK, there's an experimental Air Force swarming squadron, and they're carrying out experiments to see how all this works, how it fits together with existing military kit and people. And they're working with swarms of about 20 aircraft. In America, you can see online a video from a few years ago of a swarm of nanobots being dropped out the back of a much larger fighter aircraft. And there are hundreds of these micro drones operating together as a swarm. And if you want to think about it with a slight science fiction element, go on Google and uh, Google the alarming and dystopian film Slaughterbots, which imagines a future where swarms of autonomous microzones can be used as assassins. One advantage of the idea is they help reverse the trend in recent years for Western militaries to get smaller and more expensive. So if you think about the latest generation of fighter aircraft that the British have and the Americans have, indeed many countries in the West have or are getting, the F-35, it's ruinously expensive. It's impossible for even wealthy states like the UK to afford more than 50 to 100 of these jet aircraft. And there are limits, no matter how good an aircraft is, there are limits to what it can do if you've only got 50 to 100 of them. You can't be everywhere at once. And what AI does is it changes that equation dramatically and allows you to think about creating scale because the real quality value that AI brings is in its code. One of the attractions of the swarm is that it allows you to generate mass and that each element of that swarm ought to be able to learn and ultimately to share its experience and improve the quality of the other elements in that swarm as well. So it's something quite novel and different. It's also quite hard to target a swarm in the same way that you would an expensive, low volume army or military. If you think about, for example, think about an aircraft carrier, it's large, it's slow moving, it's potentially vulnerable to swarming by lots of small, fast moving, fast deciding systems that can swamp the aircraft carrier's defensive system. Of course, there are risks to doing that because if there's a vulnerability in that code, it's not just one or two platforms that have got them, it's thousands. It's potentially your entire army has got this same vulnerability. He highlights how there is also the potential for AI to be used in cyber warfare to seek and exploit weaknesses in the systems of our adversaries, or defensively to spot what our own weaknesses are ahead of time and fix them. He also says AI could help inform strategy in the future, similar to using a computer to work through chess options, or to test out an idea before committing to it in the field. It could be used as part of a simulation of real world activities, creating fictitious cities, even modeled on real world cities, where you can work through possible scenarios. And the Ministry of Defense is working with a company called uh, Improbable to do uh, some of that. Looking much further ahead to what he calls the boundaries of science and into science fiction, there is the idea of combining human and computer intelligence, or even using AI with biotechnology to change or enhance human intelligence. However, while many see advantages AI offers and developments are continuing at pace, he says there are potential disadvantages and concerns, particularly around the risk of AI making mistakes, the technology failing, and the ethical considerations of having life or death decisions that have not been made by humans. When you're operating in a network and, and you delegate a job to somebody else to do, how can you be sure that they'll carry out the orders that, that you want? And social scientists refer to that as the agent principle problem. 
And this is just an example, an AI example of that. But it's an important one nonetheless, because, for example, AI's advantages lie in speed. Will you have time after you've given the order to the machine and it misunderstands it and starts doing something totally different? Will you have time to intercede and correct that order if it's doing it at blistering pace? Let's say it's doing it as part of an offensive automated cyber campaign against an enemy computer system. It'll be making many thousands of decisions a second. And you've got no chance as a human of interceding to make sure that it's doing exactly what you want. So there's a risk there, I think. And then I think a final risk is that it's, it creates vulnerabilities where there weren't vulnerabilities before. So supposing AI does allow the generation of armed force at tremendous scale, and it's all sharing the same code. You've created a system where if there's a vulnerability in that system, you can effectively disarm the entire army in, in one fell swoop. If everybody is reliant on autonomous systems, what happens? For example, suppose the enemy develops uh, an unexpected electromagnetic uh, warfare system that renders all your electronics instantly redundant. What happens to your AI army at that point? And the Royal Navy today is a very high-tech Navy. It's got all sorts of, uh, of systems, including navigation systems, but they still go to sea with sextants in case those systems fail, and they still train in old-fashioned principles of navigating by the stars. If you've automated your naval capability and all your ships are uninhabited, there's no equivalent to the sextant. There's always a risk from technology going wrong. There's always a risk from any system going wrong, any complex system going wrong. And scholars talk about normal accidents. And those are accidents if you've got a complex system together, even a small error in some part of the system can cascade through and cause a much bigger catastrophe further downstream. So the classic example of a normal accident is the meltdown at Chernobyl or the space shuttle disaster. Very small systems failures compound and spread throughout the system. And I think that's definitely a possibility with AI. It's by no means perfect. And if you put it in a competitive, tough environment, there's always a possibility that it will go wrong. After all, in war, the enemy is actively trying to make sure that it does go wrong. It's trying to fool your system into thinking the wrong things, into misunderstanding its context, and so making the wrong decision. So in a sense, it's compounded, isn't it? Normal accident theory plus the competitive pressures of war means there are a lot of risks in using AI systems in combat. And it will go wrong and it will make mistakes. And that's slightly alarming. There are definitely dangers out there. Despite such fears, could we one day have a war where humans get to safely stay at home while our robots go into battle for us? He thinks probably not. Alluring though that vision is, war is going to continue to be something that's done by humans to humans, and in this case, using AI systems to, to help them with that. So we've seen plenty of cases of high-tech, cutting-edge militaries eventually being ground down into defeat by much less technologically capable enemies who have greater resolve and willingness to fight. In a way, that's the story of America and its allies in Afghanistan. In the end, for all the fancy uninhabited aircraft, the biometrics identification systems, the social network analysis done on mountains of intelligence data, monitoring phone conversations and so on, in the end, it was the low-tech enemy that won out. I think there'll still be humans in the mix for, for a long time to come. So we can't outsource the ethical dimension of war, the moral dimension of war to machines, much as we'd like. 
In fact, not only will human military forces continue to be involved in combat, when you consider cybersecurity, more parts of society could now be involved as potential perpetrators or targets. Here's Tim Stevens to explain more. We're all carrying around cell phones in our pockets, we have tablets, everything else is wired up and accessible 24-7, 365. Barriers to entry are very low. Even if you can't afford the latest iPhone, you can afford a secondhand or, or a burner phone or whatever. But along with the democratization of access to these technologies, in a sense, comes the democratization of conflict as well. And uh, the idea that not only can we be targeted by uh, certain informational means, by a potential or actual adversary, or indeed, you know, criminals is probably the most uh, relevant day-to-day uh, -day, uh, adversary in this space. Um, but also we could be engaged in those conflicts as well as active agents of uh, information, misinformation, disinformation, as people who amplify narratives and so on, as a active participants in some forms of conflict, which are not, not conventional in any military sense, but they're undoubtedly some form of modern competition between societies uh, and, and, and economies. Following the Ukraine invasion, hackers declared war on Russia and claimed to have taken down government websites. This is part of a wider trend of cyber operations now seen around the world. In Estonia in 2007, hackers did take down the most wired country on earth for a period of best part of three weeks, restricting access to banks, businesses, government and so on. We've seen an example in which an American hacker took down large chunks of the North Korean network because he was annoyed about some unwanted attention he'd had from North Korean hackers. Now, state hackers or you know, members of intelligence and military agencies do have these sorts of capabilities. They don't use them all the time. But uh, we've seen similar incidents uh, with Russia and Ukraine, possibly with China and India. We've seen all sorts of other kind of bilateral rivalries in international affairs characterized by what we might call cyber operations. There is still, I would argue, quite a large gap between the science fiction imagination and the reality of, uh, of everyday cybersecurity. But some would argue that, that that gap might be closing. And certainly, you know, what's happening out there in terms of rivalrous cyber interactions is not to be ignored. One of the realities of the digital world is it transcends geography. So I asked him, Stevens, if this is creating new transnational activities and opportunities. State-on-state -state conflicts are still predicated on national interests and notions of sovereignty and territory. That's unlikely to change anytime soon. Although the possibilities for extraterritorial interventions, so interventions outside your own national territory, are obviously increased in this environment. Cyberspace is transnational. The infrastructures are transnational. That gives you all sorts of opportunities for meddling and interfering in other jurisdictions where previously it would, would have been very difficult to do so. The advent of social media is also transforming the way war is now recorded and shaped in several different ways, as Tim Stevens explains. First is obviously that you know there are plenty more opportunities for communication and, and war always occurs in a mediated space. So there are opportunities for communication and for better or for worse. Think about the prevalence of technology, the low barriers to entry, the relative anonymity that can be afforded by social media. The second aspect is probably the speed and scale of communications. You know, it's very difficult to establish message control or impose dominant narratives in a space where essentially it's very diverse, very fast and millions of potential to individual outlets rather than just a national newspaper or a national broadcaster. Very fast, very diverse and, and slightly chaotic in a sense. So lots of opportunities to communicate, very difficult to impose 
control on that environment. The third is this trust. And the social media platforms themselves are effectively complicit in creating an environment in which not everything is as, as it seems. Think about fake news, think about deep fakes, think about misinformation, disinformation. Those lines of trust run between users and platforms, between users and users, and between users and states. And each of those relationships is very, very confused and complicated um, if you can't trust what you're seeing. And this shifts the founds of conflict into a slightly different space. It's not that there has never been obfuscation, lying, propaganda, disinformation accompanying conflicts before. Of course they have. But add that into the opportunities for communication and the scale and scope of communication, and you are in a different quantitative as well as qualitative space. And we don't yet know the full implications of that. The possibly another aspect is looking at how combatants or participants in conflict actually use social media itself. We saw, for example, a few years ago when we had this uh, multiple shooter attack in Mumbai, that the attackers were using mobile phone networks for command and control. So actually to direct operations on the day. And if people are using cell phones, say, and social media in the battle space, uh, they can also be targeted and monitored and surveilled in various ways. We've seen that happen any number of times. We've seen the information intelligence that's gathered through that being exploited to then subvert the operations of those people in the battle space. We saw the Russians do this with Ukrainian uh, artillery units a few years ago. It's fascinating stuff. And we've also seen active duty service personnel effectively stalked through social media like Strava, so that when they take their cell phones out running, when they're out on deployment, we can learn an awful lot through that intelligence, which is social media intelligence, about where they are, what they're up to, what times of day, you know, their life, their life patterns and so on. So there's lots of different ways in which social media can affect conflict. And it's changing who is joining in with reporting on wars. If you think back to the Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, uh, a lot was made at the time about how reporters were embedded in combat units during uh, what we call the Gulf War, but obviously for the Iranian, uh, the Iraqi, sorry, it's the second Gulf War. And it was CNN being embedded in military units. And we got, for the first time, we got a kind of televised, mediatized, almost firsthand, it felt, impression of what it was like to be at war in the desert. And uh, it was it was revelatory for a lot of people. Scroll forward 30 years, and those soldiers have got cell phones now. It's not like a film crew that's embedded with the military units. It's the military units, the personnel themselves that have got the cameras. And so too of the civilians around them, which means that the sheer volume of footage that is being shot in the wars in war zones is enormous. And a lot of that is faithful reportage. It's people being able to tell the stories of what it's like to live in Syria or Iraq or anywhere else. And obviously that could also be mined for intelligence about war crimes, uh, and you'll see a lot of open source uh, investigation these days from groups like Bellingcat that, that, that collate this social media footage and use it to present cases against certain, certain uh, combatants. The other side to that is that people want to share this stuff. They want to say, look, I, I'm in the know. I know what's going on in wherever it is. And if you, if you feed fake information into that, that gets shared as well. You know, war and propaganda have gone hand in hand for many, many years. Uh, it's just now that the means of creating and promoting that propaganda have been uh, rather more uh, distributed than perhaps there were before. Tim Stevens also highlights the practice of astroturfing, which is creating ground swells of support from below with bots. In Armenia recently, Azerbaijan established lots of fake or so-called sock puppet social media and messaging accounts. And these were specifically designed just to sit there really 
uh, until such time as the Azeris wanted these accounts to start pumping out messages like the Azeri army is coming to local Armenian villages and towns and so on, and which would purportedly come from local Armenians. So these were Azeris pretending to be Armenians. And the idea was to instill panic, get people on the move to leave the towns and cities inside Armenia, complicate civil control, uh, law enforcement and so on. He says countries all around the world are engaging in information operations. China's very good at stealing intellectual property. Russia's very, very good at sabotage. Uh, the Americans are very good at um, high-grade intelligence collection and breaking things very quietly. Uh, and we're, we're, we're very good at signals intelligence. He cautions against thinking that such activities are not as harmful as other types of warfare, as this fails to acknowledge the damage it does cause. One of, the, uh, one of the reasons why some commentators say that this might all be relatively beneficial to the human race is precisely because it doesn't involve the use of guns and bombs and bullets. So if you can achieve particular outcomes through the use of information and the ways that you affect cognitive and behavioural change in populations and so on without killing anyone, then perhaps this is good. At the same time, it tends to erode trust and confidence in almost every institution and structure, which, depending on your point of view, might be a great thing. But actually, most people thrive on stability and security, and all of this greatly undermines both of those. We have heard how the rules of engagement are shifting as technology opens up new areas of defence and security, and is altering the reality of who is involved in conflicts today. So how prepared are we to deal with these challenges? And is there anything we should be doing now to put in safeguards? Kenneth Payne does not think we are particularly well prepared for this changing element of warfare, in part because it is developing so rapidly. There might also be reluctance from sections of the armed forces to shift away from the way things were done in the past. When it comes to safeguards and regulation, he warns it won't be easy to regulate or ban autonomous weapons despite the many justified fears and ethical concerns they raise. You might say, well, let's take our foot off the accelerator here. Let's stop and have a conference and discuss and see if we can ban, perhaps even regulate the use of, of AI weapon systems. The problem is that for all those risks, the potential advantages are so great. Uh, the ability to generate these capabilities and to cheat on any possible regulation when you're doing so means that it's really hard to trust that your potential enemies won't do these things. And so you're in a kind of an arms race situation where you feel that you've got to get this technology, you've got to get it as quickly as you possibly can, and certainly one step ahead of any potential enemy. He also says there are difficulties working out agreed international standards, not only because of the race to keep up with or beat the progress of rivals, but also because much of the technology has dual purposes. The same algorithm that can be used to detect a tumour on a mammogram with a bit of retraining and rejigging can be used to find tanks hiding in woodlands. So it's really difficult to regulate for a technology that has a whole range of purposes, only some of which might be military. These are decision-making technologies and those decisions can be military or not military of times. And then lastly, if you think about, suppose you wanted to develop a, a clandestine nuclear weapons programme, you need all sorts of things that would make it obvious to anybody looking on that you were violating the terms of the treaties that you'd signed up to. You need um, rare ingredients like uranium to enrich. 
you'd need expertise, scarce nuclear scientists who understood how these things worked and understood the industrial processes needed to create a nuclear weapon. And then you'd need a huge amount of complex machinery and plant to enable you to do that. And all that has a signature. So it's quite relatively easy to see who's developing this stuff. Less easy with AI, where you can, at a pinch, uh, acquire cutting edge code by reading the latest AI journals, or if it's really secret, by carrying out good old fashioned espionage activities to steal somebody else's code. So it's harder to detect who's developing this sort of technology, uh, and that makes regulation hard. So I think overall we're at a time of potentially really radical change in warfare. We think right up until this moment, decisions about warfare have been made by human intelligence. And we understand, albeit imperfectly, some of the processes involved there. And we're now on the cusp, right at the start of a transition to an era where some, perhaps even many decisions about violence will be made by a very different sort of intelligence. And we're still in the early stages of understanding the implications that flow from that. Looking to the future, he suggests the focus should be on trying to ensure that our AI systems work in conjunction with or support of our existing human practices, norms and moral values. Tim Stevens believes there is a lack of general education and awareness among the public about cybersecurity and too much of a willingness to engage in conspiracy which is not helpful and can be easy for others to exploit. He says we need to get away from thinking of this as a technical problem that needs to be fixed. These are political problems. These are about allocation of resources. These are about responsibility. Um, these are about who is uh, given particular tasks and mission sets and so on. It doesn't have to be particularly a Windows operating system or iOS or a particular form of social media. They will just use whatever they can because ultimately their objectives are political, not technical. If your objective is to bring down Apple through iOS, that's different. But if your objective is to persuade a civilian population that their government can't be trusted, then it doesn't matter what platform you use. In fact, you're going to exploit all of them. It's political and strategic. It's not a technical proposition at all. I'm absolutely certain that the answers to cybersecurity problems will not just come from the technical communities. They will have to involve legal communities and law enforcement, justice, they will have to involve social sciences and behavioral scientists. They will need to involve people as diverse as geographers and philosophers, because the, the, the problems of the digital affect every single sector of society and economy. He highlights that in warfare today, the rules of engagement have changed from the past. We're not very good at fighting adversaries that don't play by our rules and ones that subvert what we might think of as being the normal kind of way of doing business in, in the battle space. He also says we need to start having difficult discussions about what we are comfortable for our own military and security forces to do when it comes to information operations. In this technical space have conventionally been quite separated in Western doctrine and strategy. They're not in Russia and they're not in China, which have a very much more holistic view of how computers and psychology and cognition interact. And we are struggling to put the hardware, if you like, and the software together with the wetware of the human mind. And when we do try and do that, we get lots of pushback from our populations who talk about mind control and so on, which is not really what we're trying to get at here. But it's much easier if you're an authoritarian regime to put all those things together. We're very uncomfortable with that. 
And yet that's what our adversaries are doing. And that means that we're going to have to have a very, very uncomfortable debate about whether we can allow our militaries and intelligence agencies to do that kind of activity as a matter of course, as a sort of a really central component of interstate competition. I don't think we're ready for that conversation. Um, I don't know how we would even resolve that conversation because it would mean allowing our state agencies to do something that we don't want to be done to us. And yet it is being done to us and we need to find some way of countering that. And I think that's going to be very, very difficult indeed. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will listen out for the second part of our series on the changing face of war, when we will be looking at how space has become an important area of defence and security. How might this progress in the future? And whether the world is ready for this new frontier. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.